Uh, we have the awesome privilege we had in our engaged training with about 35 people showed up yesterday training on what how to how to minister to Christ, minister to Christ. I would say absolutely learn that as well as ministering Christ, doing both. And so we're so thankful to have. Ernie with us. I asked him to come up and give us a little bit of testimony of what's going on with you. Y'all welcome Ernie Kruger as he comes up. Thank you, Pastor Chris. Come on, man. Well, firstly, we love being here. Pastor Chris and uh, Casey are some of our faith heroes. They, they really are. In, in ministry, one of the greatest privileges you have is to know people that deeply love and pursue God. And when you get around them, you kind of get pulled by their current of love and their current of God-fearing. And, and so Pastor Chris is just a great friend and a counselor and a, a prayer warrior that we appreciate. Thank you so much yeah. to you, Casey. And what I do love is the, long, the more I know Jesus and the more we go around the nations or internationally and you see the need for Jesus, you, th- you get thankful for people that says, God, I will, I will stand in the gap and corral the people that will charge the gates of the city with the gospel. Aren't you glad for pastors that want to say, listen, we want to lay down our lives to lead people and how to follow Jesus, how to know Jesus and how to make him known. And one of our greatest passions, um, my wife and I, is to do campus ministry. So every nation has three things that we focus on. It's world missions, campus ministry, and church planning. And those are the three things that brings us together, you know. And one, the area that my wife and I really love and are super passionate about is specifically campus ministry um, at this point. But this past summer from our campus, and one of the reasons we reached the campus is we had students go to Fiji. In fact, um, uh, Sarah Campbell, the one of the, the uh, her, her dad and brother, I think, played the, the guitar and drums yeah. this morning. She was in Fiji, you know, with some of our other students. And then we had just had students come back a couple of days ago from Australia, you know. And that's what's amazing to me is when people get saved in our campus ministry, we'd say, "Go get a passport," and they look at us. Why do I need a passport for? I said, you need a Bible and you need a passport. You know, because when you get to know Jesus, he puts stuff in you that the nations must know, right? Yeah. I mean, the Bible says in Psalms 2a that ask me and I'll make the nations your inheritance. You know, and talking about what Jesus came on the cross was him literally winning back the nation. So that, yesterday was fantastic too, Pastor Chris, being able to see the life and the excitement of people in this church that want to proclaim the gospel um, that was, I was encouraged. I just looked at them and you can tell them just sitting there thinking, I want to go preach the gospel to someone tomorrow, you know, and hopefully that was helpful. Um, a little update from Dallas, Texas. We kicking things, kicking things off. Uh, we, in fact, we started yesterday. We had a freshman move in. Um, we've got new fully funded campus missionaries. And as a whole, what's amazing uh, as you guys give and pray and just participate, you know, city life is a small expression of a bigger movement, you know. I mean, every nation has got a lot going on. Dallas is a small expression of a bigger movement. And all our churches are a small expression of a bigger movement. And, and, and all over the world, evangelistically, we are taking new ground. Yeah. We, one thing that we are passionate about is not church migration, but really unbelievers coming to know Christ. And I think that's one thing that God's called every nation. It's kind of a, a great passion we have as every nation is that, God, we are thankful for people that's coming to find a church that already believes. But we feel called by God to go to those who's never heard the gospel yet. So we have more churches and campus ministries in nations that you're not even allowed to preach the gospel in that's growing. You know, in China and all over the world. So just to say that your prayers, the prayers of the saints are powerful and it's effective. It's moving not just in this city, but it's moving all over the world. And so we are just thankful, Pastor Chris. It's great to give a little update. Um, thank you for praying for us. Thank you for doing what you're doing. We met this morning with a campus staff here. And, I mean, what a great team. You all have an awesome campus staff. 
that's going to be phenomenal and that's going to yeah. grow, that's going to take this campuses. So what we need to do is just believe for Rice University. Yeah. So if you're in here and you feel called to campus ministry, come tell Pastor Chris afterwards. But I want to start a Rice campus ministry, you know. Yeah. And, um, anyway, we're excited, Pastor Chris. That's Thank awesome. you for all y'all do. Can, can we, Lord, pray for Ernie and his, his wife, Katie? And yep. They just had, that. well, not just had, how old is your newest now? Ten months. Ten months old, yep. five kids. So we're, he's, he's, his, his biggest vision is Jesus. Second is the Duggar family, right? <laughs> he's going for 19, 20. So we're super excited about prophesying over that. No, but we, we, love, we love Ernie. I feel like Star-Lord, and this is Thor. And so uh, we're just going to pray a blessing right now over Ernie. We love him so much. God, I thank you for Ernie, and I thank you for Katie and the whole family, Lord Jesus. I thank you for what you're doing in Dallas in and through him, Lord. Will you continue to increase him, Lord, as he goes to our church in Abilene and came here from San Antonio and all the work he's doing around our region. Father, will you continue to guide his steps, Lord, give him words and encouragement, Lord, and help him just continue to light fires all around, Lord, and bring about evangelists and more people to reach the kingdom of God. I thank you, God, for more than just his words, Lord, but his very presence and power, Lord, that is evident. We see you in him, God. We thank you for the gift and what you're doing in and through him. We bless him in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One more hand for Ernie. Uh, Typically, I would have Ernie preach for us because we love uh, his gift. And uh, I think the last time he preached was this, like about six months ago, I think. And, um, but since I haven't preached in a little while, uh, I needed to get up here. My sheep hear my voice. And uh, no, I'm joking. But uh, wanted to wrap up our series. We had REA Bar David here last week. How many of you guys appreciate REA? It was really good. Hopefully you can get the message. First service and second service were completely different. So uh, it's just the Hebrew way, I guess. But uh, it was really awesome to have REA, and he just loved our church, sends his greetings, and thank you. Uh, he really appreciated that. And uh, it was a great time to have him. And he went through 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and talked about the resurrection of Christ. And if you're new with us, we've been going through 1 Corinthians. And really our goal and our aim in going through 1 Corinthians is to see this church, one of the first churches um, that Paul had started. And it's, it, the 1 Corinthians is simply a letter that Paul is writing anywhere from 50, 54 uh, AD. And he's writing this letter to them to encourage them, but also to rebuke them in some things and instruct them. Ultimately, the context and the point of the letter is this. What does the kingdom of God under the Savior King look like? And that's what we've been exploring for the last 12 weeks as a church. And I hope you've gotten a lot out of it. I mean, we are able from chapter 1 through 4 to see him talk about the, the disunity and talk about unity and why we need unity as a church, which we'll talk about a little bit today. As he continued in chapter 5 through 15, he talked about everything from sexual immorality to marriage to family um, to gifts of the Spirit. Uh, he talked about litigation and lawsuits and the things that were going on in response to the letters he was getting about the church he had started. And so we get to see kind of this whole posture and this whole message of how he's instructing this church to live out the gospel. Because the gospel isn't something just to be believed, it's something to be lived. It's something to where that belief actually strengthens and pushes and compels 
all the rest of my life. And that's what the point is. And so the people there in 1 Corinthians, a lot like Houston. It was a port city, a lot of money, and a lot of trade in Corinth. And so we can relate to a lot of the challenges and the struggles as believers or as a church. What does it look like to operate in the kingdom of God and to learn how to love Jesus and not allow the culture to set our thermostat, but we set the thermostat for culture? What does that look like? How do we live this out? And that's what we've been exploring and looking at. I wanted to end today and kind of get a chance just to wrap it up with this idea. What does this mean for City Life Church? 12 weeks, getting in a book, not just moving on. We're going to do some other things, obviously. We've got a lot of plans and where we're going as a church. But as we wrap up this book, so what? What did we learn? What's the point? And I think there's, a, there's several takeaways. And as you're looking at and thinking about, even looking at the scripture, you always have to approach it with a sense of humility. You always have to approach it with, okay, I'm entering into a foreign land and I need to figure out what is going on and where am I going. And I think we need to ask the question, it's good to see how Paul was appropriating the gospel and the message of Jesus and the kingdom and helping them practically live it out. What does that mean for City Life Church? Well, in order to get there, I I, want to look at a, a famous, one of the most famous British historians. His name was Edward Gibbon. And he documented the startling, just rapid growth of the church during this apostolic age, um, during 1 Corinthians, while, while Paul's writing all these letters and Romans, like what was happening in the church, especially the first church in Jerusalem, what was happening? He wrote um, this collection of books um, in several volumes called The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. If you're not familiar with it, it's, it covers about 1,300 years of history. And the crazy thing about this historian, he wasn't a believer. In fact, he was a skeptic. And yet, through history, okay, and through looking at scripture as well as Josephus and other historians, he came up with five reasons for the cause of the dramatic growth of the first church. And so, even as a skeptic, he recognized this is true, this is history, this is fact, and this, this church grew so much and exploded to the point where it, it overthrew Rome as far as the main religion taken over, and so over, over by Constantine. And so, ultimately, he's looking at how did this happen, and he gives five specific attributes to this growth. And I want to look at what even a skeptic would say and what he thinks was the cause of the growth of the church and then relate that to us and what we've been seeing in the first church. And our takeaway is church. Number one, he would say that he'd noticed in history the zeal of the Christians. There was something about the first church and Christianity where the people were just on fire and zealous for God. Paul would say later in the book of Romans, never lag in your zeal for God. Anybody ever lagged in zeal for God? Yeah, I'm raising my hand. Yeah. Well, you shouldn't. And, and we know that. Like, we know in our knower that, like, we should be passionate about God. We should be 
passion about scripture, if you're a believer in here, if you're not, you know, you're, you're trying to figure this thing out or, or, or just come against it, whatever, wherever you are in your walk or just in your life. But as a Christian, as a believer, we know we shouldn't lag in zeal. And the kind of zeal that the Christians had wasn't the zeal where everybody was on board and there was no suffering and persecution and it was just easy and everything they wanted came to pass like some of American Christianity is portrayed. That, you know, just ask and, and God's going to provide and give you everything you need all the time. Well, God is not a genie in a bottle. You don't rub him the right way to get what you want, right? Ultimately, that's Christina Aguilera, by the way. Ultimately, God does not operate that way. God is a father and he's treating us like sons and daughters. And sometimes giving us things in a package we don't want. But he gives you the things you need. In the midst of it. And you see the first church, their zeal, not only just their passion and fervor because of what God was doing in the spirit of God, but their willingness even to suffer all the way to death. You look at all of the apostles. Every one of them didn't end up living their best life now. They died for the faith. They actually, some were beheaded, some were crucified, some were crucified upside down, some were burned. And they were able with zeal to go to their death. Because not they're believing some kind of fiction or some kind of story, but because their faith wasn't wrapped around some kind of teaching or doctrine, but ultimately because their faith was wrapped around a person. And the resurrection and truth of Jesus Christ, they were so convinced and it so permeated everything about their life that they were willing to die for it. Now fast forward 2,000 years and it's like, God, okay, my checking account's looking a little bad. Uh, I don't feel very good. Like, ah, I'm going to skip group today. Or, ah, I'm going to skip. Like, where's the zeal? Where's the passion? And I'm going to say this several times. It is a quote by Dallas Willard. Is this, grace is not opposed to effort, but earning. Let me say it again. Grace isn't opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. So here's what I mean when I say that and when we talk about the zeal of the Christians. Their zeal came out of not trying to earn their way to God. Way to God. And like I'm going to prove to God that I'm worthy and that I'm good so that then he'll accept me and love me. No, 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 no. See, it's totally backwards. It's actually the gift of God, the charis, the gift, the grace of God was given to them through Jesus who paid it all, who did it all. It is done. He finished the work. And as we recognize and thank him and are, and, but are cut to the heart for what he has done, now out of that, my response should be effort. My response should be striving to get him and to be after him, not to earn his favor because it's already been given. It's a gift. But now, because he earned it, I want to earnestly contend for him and for more. So don't hear, as we're talking about this, that we're saying, you know, got to earn and earn. No, no, no. It's about the effort because of the grace of God and what he's done in my life. You understand this with kids. You understand this with family, maybe hopefully with your spouse, that, that it's not them trying to earn your love back. But when they love you, it actually creates, when they give you something, it creates in you and compels you to want to give back and hopefully to even give more. When your boss rewards you and says, here you go and I want to promote you, 
if you're entitled and selfish, you'll be like, yeah, of course, you know what? Um, but if you're thankful, now you go, now I want to do an even better job because of the gift that you've given me. This word grace in the Greek is charis. The grace given us isn't, listen, opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. But we should give our all and our passion and everything to the cause of Christ as zealous people. And this is what we see them do. The doctrine, the second one, the doctrine of the immortality of the soul was attributed to the dramatic growth of the church according to this historian. And, and what this means is they, they believed before that the idea was just you die, there's no resurrection, it's over. We talked about the resurrection of Christ yesterday and, and the passion behind, the understanding behind that you are an eternal being. And that Jesus' way in his teaching is that you are eternal being and God offers the gift of eternal life. And that changes not just one day I'm going to go to Beulah land, but that changes today how I act. Because there's a level of, of, of accountability and I know one day I'm going to give an account to God. And so it's going to give me and feed that zeal as well as provide for people eternal life. Number three, the miraculous powers attributed to the church. He noticed and saw within the context with the powers that he was seeing from history what was happening with people being healed and lame walking and dramatic transformation and growth. Out of that, he said, yeah, of course. I mean, that created something. And the question for us, I think, today in looking at this is where's the power? In our life, if we just operate naturally but don't have supernatural power, where are we? And, and, and the church, Jesus, the Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so the same power that they had is the same power that's working within us. Number four, he says, the pure morality of the first Christians. The, their level of holiness. And their holiness, listen, it, it, it didn't repel people from them. It actually compelled people to them. Because true holiness, walking in that, listen, just like the pimps, the Bible says, and the prostitutes were attracted to Jesus. And they were on the edge of their seat. And they're like, I, I got to get, I got to understand it and get more. There's something about even people on the outskirts and in sin, when true Godly holiness is available. People are actually attracted to it, not repelled from it. Now, in our context, you could think of when we, we use the word like holier than thou. You were talking, about, man, that person, they're holier than thou. And we use it in this negative context because we associate it with, with a hypocrite or somebody that's using their posture of holiness in order to judge and put that on you. Listen, that's not what was happening in the first church. There was a radical zeal and different kind of way of life that, that made people go, you guys are different than that religious person or that thing or that religion. You guys are different than them. And it compelled people to say, I, I, I need to know more about this and, and I want what you have. And so true, godly holiness should actually attract, not repel. It should compel, not dispel. And yet, we don't often see this because the idea of, of, of judgment and people who are just judging me and, and those kind of things. But I'm telling you, when you come to Christ, 
You don't just come to God in a sense of, I need you and now I'm going about my normal way. You come to God with a humble heart, ultimately, of repentance. And starting with this concept of repentance, which literally means this, changing the way you think and act. Thinking always presupposes action. If I see your action, I know where your thinking is. And so I want to combat your thinking too. So you have to think about Christianity in this sense. And Jesus came talking about the kingdom of God. He talked about the ways of God. And you have to look at scripture. You have to to think about it in this sense. How many of you guys have ever traveled to a foreign land or a foreign country? Yeah? And, and you get there, and you're a little like, I, I don't know where I am. This feels weird. This feels awkward, maybe. Or I'm trying to figure out the culture and the language. If you've ever gone somewhere where you don't know the language, it can be really awkward. And you can feel really, really insecure because you're like, I don't know, man. If, if my phone doesn't work or my translate starts working, I'm in big trouble, right? Because I don't know how to communicate, and I don't know the culture. Now, many people don't love Americans in other culture because we kind of come in with this sense of pride and like, well, we're Americans. You should know English. And you should dress like me and act like me. And you should have all of these things. And you're not free. And you don't have all these, you know, you have all these ways and rules. And so we approach it with pride. A lot of people approach Christianity that same way. Like, God, Jesus, you should be doing what I'm doing. And of course, yeah, I want the benefit, but I don't want the effort. I don't want to go through anything. I'm not really trying to turn about face and say humbly, listen, my way was this way. My culture was this way. My language was this way. But now repentance says, I humble myself and I want your way and your language and your culture and your thinking. And Jesus would say, you've heard it this way, and this is how life has been, I'm telling you, this is how the kingdom of God is. And Christianity starts, always starts with this place of humility and repentance. And that holiness drives us not to try to say, I'm better than you, or I'm just even different than you, but in fact, I'm following someone different than you. And that person I'm following is Jesus, and that Jesus will always compel me to go his way, but listen, always with the mindset of reaching out and grabbing and getting other people that are not because he would say, I'm the truth, I'm the way, I'm the life. Trust me, go my way. And the church seemed to understand that in their morals. They, they changed their, their, their attitude. They had to change their whole sacrificial system as far as what they thought and knew. I mean, so many changes. You can read it through the book of Acts, so many changes. But the humility that came as they approached Christ to say, I want you in your way. Now, finally, this historian would say this. The unity and the community of the church was a fifth way he, see, he saw for the attribute of dramatic growth in the first century. This unity that they had was phenomenal. I mean, the scripture would say things like um, 3,000 people were about to read were saved in one day, and they were all in one accord. Can you imagine? I mean, we, we have a couple hundred people here, and, and I don't know that we could all be in one, one mind 
right? One way, one, one thought. And again, that's not uniformity. That's unity. There's a difference. Uniformity is dress like me, talk like me, or like robot me. But unity is under the context of the same passion and center of my life. That's unity. And it's pretty much saying all of them had Jesus as the center. And they were different and unique and diverse in their gifts. But their passion was all about Christ. And it created unity and it created a community. That, that Jesus would go on and say this. People will know me by the love you have, and they will want me by the love you have for one another. Can, can people say that about our church? And, and this, is, this is what's always pushing, compelling, looking at this church to, and these attributes to say, where are we as City Life Church? Where are we going? How are we compelling one another in our zeal? Where's, where's, our, where's our zeal, our fervor, our passion? I love, I'm going to pick on Nate because Nate, uh, I was talking to him before service, so don't talk to me before service and uh, if you don't want to be talked about. But I, Nate's like, you know why I'm sitting up here at front? He came to the Engage training with Ernie. He said, you know why I'm sitting up here at front? He said, because I, 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 need to, I need to be more focused. I want to be more zeal. I want more of God. And, and, and I was like, man, he's like, I, I, we just bought a house. We're going to have a small group. I want to have men over. Like there is a zeal in, wh- where's our zeal? And I think we all have to ask, if you're a believer, where's, where's my zeal? Am I zealous, my passion? Again, I can see your passion through your actions. I can. Because passion ignites. It's the catalyst for action. And, and where's our zeal? Where, where are we in that? It's like God is just like another thing. He's on the priority list, but he's been added to my kingdom, not me to his. Where are we there? And that's my question I think every one of us need to answer individually. Where is our, our, our teaching, our doctrine, our passion for eternal life? And does that feed my zeal? Knowing one day I'll give account to God and know that one day other people will give account to God that don't know him. Does that feed my zeal to reach them? Where is the power? Am I just naturally gifted with things? But what, where, where are the places, as we sang earlier, my hope is in you. And because I'm done, like I have nothing else to give. And if you don't come through, God, if you don't super, bring your super onto my natural, I'm not going to make it. Where, where's, where's that in, in our life? Where's that in our church? Where's that in our passions? But believing God for greater and more and that he can do abundantly above and beyond all that we could dare ask or think? Or are we just kind of down here living just kind of the normal Christian life? You know, normal Christian life, if you read the scripture, is a supernatural life. It's a zealous life. It's a pure and moral life. Where, where is my holiness? If I humbled myself to say, God, I want your way and your kingdom or am I saying, God, enter into my kingdom and my domain and my will, but then every once in a while I need your gifting? Where, where are we in our unity? Have you devoted yourself to God and to community in the church? I want to end in Acts chapter 2 and look at what he's talking about in these five things. You can see them. And how they operate and how it challenges us as a people. Let's go all the way down to verse 37. Peter just got up and he spoke. Filled with the Holy Spirit, God moved in power. 
Jesus is resurrected 40, 50 days later, Pentecost. He speaks the first message about Jesus and he didn't tell them about doctrine and all these things they should do. He simply laid out before them a God king who died for them and they need to repent. And, 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 and listen, when they heard the gospel message, look at and notice their response in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent. Turn around, change the way you think and act, and be baptized or completely immersed, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And then here's a gift. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your, for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Here we are today, 2,000 years later. And with many other words, he bore witness and continue to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 3,000 people from all over the region came together and were added to the church. And look, look now, here we go. What happened when the gospel is preached, people are convicted, they're cut to the heart, and they humble themselves and say, I want your way now. Watch what happened and the implications. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And, the, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what happened? First of all, I love this. They devoted themselves. This word devoted, in the Greek, is proskaterio, which means this, to continue to do something with intense effort, with the possible implication of despite difficulty, to devote oneself to, to keep on, to persist in. So despite how hard it can be and the difficulty of it, I'm going to do what? I'm going to, number one, devote myself to learning. Devote myself to say a, a disciple literally means just a learner, a one who learns. And so you're looking at, I, I, I want to devote myself dis, despite how hard it is, how challenging it can be, how humble it can be to be in a foreign land. I'm going to, listen, think about what Jesus has done for me. Take my life and now attribute it to how I work. How does the gospel affect my hobbies? How does the gospel affect my marriage? How does the gospel affect my thought life? How does the gospel affect everything? Because I'm devoted. And no matter how hard, how much effort it takes, this is what I'm passionate about. And, and not only to learning, 
But listen, they say they're devoted to fellowship. This is a special term in the, the Greek called koinonia. And now, not many of us use the word fellowship. How many, hey, let's get together. Let's have some fellowship. Now, if you've been a Christian a long time, you might have used that word. But it's weird in culture, right? You're not like, bro, let's go to the bar and fellowship. Like, that, that's weird in our culture. That's not really, we're not used to that term. This term doesn't just mean hang out. Like gather people together and hang out. It actually is so much meaning to it. It means sharing one each other's life, our inner thought, our deepest desires. It's a relational connection that's deep and committed to one another. And not only that, it's an idea of sharing of our stuff. And sharing of what's mine is not just mine, but now it's yours. You're a part of the body of Christ, and you're a part of Christ. And so now we collectively, in unity, when we fellowship, what's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. I mean, it's just this mentality that I am not my own. My, my passions are not my own. I'm now thinking of someone else. You, you, you know, you've, if, if you're a parent in here, how many parents do we have in here? Okay. If you're a parent in here you, and you, you have a toddler... You know what koinonia is, okay? Koinonia for a toddler is they've got their sippy cup and they're drinking their sippy cup, but they see your cup and they grab your cup and they drink it and they get, you know, the Cheez-Its and the animal crackers all up in it. And now you're going, okay. But, but, but as a dad, you go, yeah, we're family. And if that disgusts you, you don't have kids yet. I understand. And if that disgusts you, you have kids, you're a germaphobe, and we're going to have inner healing after this. But um, there's, there's something about the relationship there that says, what's mine is yours. We're family. And I'm not just in this for me. Like, this isn't my cup. This isn't my thing. Now, it's God's, and we'll use it together. Now, this isn't a form of socialism or communism. It's not to that extreme because the goal isn't forcing people to do it or making. It's, it's, it's volitional towards our, our passion that is the same, and that's Jesus. This koinonia is something that was created, listen, listen, first out of the gift that was given to them in Christ, not through earning, but through a gift, but secondly, out of the devotion and the passion they had that I'm willing to go through difficult circumstances to do this. One, one thing I love is the, is the last thing, and I'm going to end here, that you see in this. And this is their devotion to learning, to koinonia fellowship, but also to, lastly, to worship. Which to me includes prayer, the presence of God, the gifts, the sacraments. I think of those, those people in our church that come here and, and want to sit in the front row just to say, oh, I need to be in the presence of God because I, I, I'm getting a lot from people and things, but I need the presence of God. I need worship. I need prayer. I, I think of some of the people in our church that serve. If you don't know Bob Davis, I, I don't know if he's in here today. I, I think it was first service. People are so afraid to give up their life to a community or to a person because they're afraid they're going to personally burn out. I think this is an American idea because we're constantly burned out. Like, I don't want to give too much of my time because, like, I just don't have a lot because I'm already just overwhelmed. And I get that. But the kingdom of God, Jesus would say this, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all that other stuff is going to work out. 
But see, when we're seeking all the other stuff in the room, I'll add that. You never have enough time for it. I want to brag on Bob because Bob has a son who came out of the womb uh, paralyzed and not being able to, to move much and having all of these, these physical conditions and issues that have been hard for them. But they, they still to this day bathe Michael. And you'll hear Michael every once in a while, hoop, hoop. He loves to do that in the middle of the sermon. And new people are like, what's going on? But he, he gets into it. But his, the intellectual part of him has only gone so far as to about a six-year-old, a five-year-old, and he's 30. Do you remember 33? Something like that, years old. They still bathe him. Bob right now travels all week and goes out of the, the state every week, travels for his work, comes back, is helping with his family, is a good father, shows up on Sunday to do parking lot ministry. And he's a brilliant guy. He can teach. He's amazing. Humbles himself and says, you know what? This is how I can serve the church. And I watch Bob and I go, what's my excuse? But even more than just that to like feel bad, I look at Christ and go, what's my excuse? I look at what Jesus has done for me and I go, I've got to trust you that if I seek you, if I seek your kingdom, if I seek your people, then other things are going to be added to me. You've ever gone on a vacation and you came back and you needed another vacation? Because, you know, there's not enough pina coladas and beaches and mountains in the world to give you the rest that you need. Only Jesus can give you the real rest that you need. And he will work you, but when you're doing the kingdom of God work, there's this eternal rest and there's this resting and peace even when I'm tired bodily. And yet we have this mentality, I don't want to burn out. I'm already doing too much. And God says, you know why? It's because you're living life in the urgent instead of the important. And as a church, I'm talking to Christians, we cannot be this way. We have to be the type of people that say, you know what, this is hard, but I'm devoted. And I'm not devoted to earn it, but I'm devoted because God is devoted to me. Relationship is hard. This is going to be difficult. You go to a small group and you're like, I don't really know about these people. Everyone feels like that every time your leader feels like that. You talk to our leaders, they're like, I don't want to go to group today. You know why? Because it's hard. A relationship is hard. But you know why it's hard? It's because most of the time, we're not getting our rest in Christ and getting our fulfillment in Him that's compelling me to love someone else and do what I don't want to do. I'm so busy and crazy. I don't have time for zeal and my zeal and passions are in something else and then I've, I've got to give another thing. I don't have it in me. And God says, listen, just come to me. Those who are weary, heavy laden, those who are burned out, I've got real rest for you. I've got actually the thing that you need more than anything. And that's me and my presence. And listen, that will always fill you up. Not that it makes it just easy, but it makes it profitable and fruitful and beneficial every time. Okay, I'm going to go that extra mile. I'm going to drive that extra mile. I'm going to show up. I'm going to do my thing. And I say this because as a church, I never want us to drift into a place of ease and comfort because the current will always take you there. And yet, our passion and what we need to be as a people in a City Life church, 
full of zeal, full of people that are willing to learn and humble ourselves, full of people that are willing and saying, I want to pursue fellowship with other believers because I can't be Christ-centered without it. I can't do it all my own. Me and my wife need other people. Me, single, need, I need other people. And though it's hard, that's what God uses to craft in me the image of Christ. And I want to encourage you as we go into this next season. I love the fall. It's kind of like, it's kind of like January. It's like the new year because the fall for us is a new year as we kick off our, our city life groups and encourage people to get in groups and relationships. You always have to, there's this, getting this fear. You always have to come in and say, why are we doing this? Because Christ has done it for us. Why do I not lay my life down for someone else? Why do I not look for opportunities to serve someone else? Let Christ compel. And I want to end today with an opportunity to pray. I ask our one-to-one team to come up and ask you to stand to your feet. We're going to end with worship today and just be in the presence of God. And if you have any prayer requests, we have also communion available if you want to take communion. But if you have any prayer requests, anything come up, we want to pray for you because as a church, we're passionate about the prayers and praying with one another. But also I want to encourage you just to worship, to be in the presence of God because many of you today are hearing some of these things and some of you have heard this before. Some of you have like, yeah, I've read that before. But my prayer is that God does something in your heart like like he's doing in mine. Where's your zeal, Chris? Where's your passion? Where is your, your priority? Where is your center? Where are you? And that's the question today. If you're a believer in here, where are you? Where are you? Maybe you need to repent and go, I need to humble myself and I need to get out there again. I've gotten comfortable. And I need Jesus. I need the people of Jesus. Because here's the deal. At the end of the day, healed people, heal people. Forgiven people, forgive people. Served people, like we've been served by Christ, serve people. Loved people. Love people. Some of you today need to be reminded of how you've been served by Christ. Need to be reminded of how you've been forgiven by Christ. Need to be reminded of how you've been loved by Christ. So it'll compel you to love, to give, to forgive, and to serve. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Remind us of your love your grace, your passion. As we say, there's no one else but Jesus. Praise you, Jesus' name.